Father, we, we do appreciate, Lord, being able to gather with uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith and to be able to, Lord, uh, I think of that first song, we just sing that prayer that you taught us, and, and to really just make our hearts open before you. Uh, and so, Lord, we thank you for that, the gift of fellowship that we enjoy in the spirit. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. You've been uh, so kind to us, so faithful to us to minister again and again and again, Lord, throughout the millennia to your people through your word. And once more, Lord, we're asking for that to occur as we gather today. So Lord, bless us, draw us in, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us as your church. In this day and in this moment, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been making our way through the book of Titus. I hope by now, if you've been with us, I hope by now you have nailed down this reality of who Titus is and the purpose of this book. Titus, this young minister, 30s, something like that, that Paul was commissioning, sending out in many ways to go out as his apostolic representative to the island of Crete. A big island, well-populated island, lots of people lived on there, lots of towns, lots of villages, and lots of local bodies of believers. Obviously, one church, capital C, and Titus was going to have the responsibility to get to each of those towns or call the leaders from those towns, whatever it might be, uh, and, a, and serve, as I said, the apostolic minister of those bodies of believers. Specifically, we've been learning there were a few responsibilities that he would have. First, we saw in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and it was that he would appoint godly leaders in each of those communities, people that would oversee those local bodies uh, of believers and minister in that way there in the church. We learned in also in chapter 1, but a little later in the chapter, verses 10 and 11, that a major responsibility of Titus was going to be to address the false teachers and the false teaching that was making its way, remember, upsetting families and things like that, but making its way into the homes of the various people that made up those churches. And then last week, we began considering a third key responsibility uh, of Titus, and that was going to be, it's, it's defined, if you will, in verse 1 of chapter 2, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he begins that passage, and we've started that passage, but he begins that with the words, but as for you. And again, that, that word but, it forces us, like a word therefore, for instance, it forces us to go back and remind ourselves what came just before this so that we can put it in context. Again, what came just before this, but as for you, was his talk about those false teachers, those false teachers that needed to be dealt with. Remember, he said in chapter 1, verse 9, that the false teachers didn't hold firm to the trustworthy word of God. He said that, also in verse 9, that they did not give instruction in sound doctrine, and later on he would say, in fact, they contradicted sound doctrine. In verse 16, he said of those false teachers that they professed to know God, but their lives that they lived out was evidence that they didn't really know God. They knew a lot about him, but they didn't actually know him, otherwise they wouldn't be living the way that they were living. And so bottom line, his responsibility, or as far as these false teachers are concerned, is he said in chapter 1, verse 11, they needed to be silenced because they were upsetting whole families. So that's what the false teachers were like. That's what they were doing. But again, notice how he begins chapter 2. But as for you, Titus wasn't a false teacher, and he wasn't teaching unsound doctrine, and his life did match up with 
his words and the like. So he says to him, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I said this last week, but to my surprise, he doesn't follow up with what that sound doctrine is. He doesn't say, make sure you teach this and make sure you teach that and make sure you teach this. Rather, what he, say, he follows up with are the actions that are supposed to follow belief. He knew that Titus had down what he needed to teach. And what Titus needed to focus on in the lives of the people that he was ministering to is what the false teachers weren't focusing on, even in their own lives, was a life that measured up with our words, our walk and our talk, if you will, being one and the same. And so the first group that Paul says to Titus that you need to address were the older men. We see that there in verse 2, I'll remind you. It said older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul, or Titus was to take special time with those individuals, those older men of the congregation, and help them to be growing in these particular areas. They're not going to be perfect in it, otherwise he wouldn't be told to address it, but to be growing in these particular areas. Then in verse 3, he gave Titus instructions as to how he was to deal with the older women. He says in verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And, and it goes on from there. Now that now leads us to the third demographic where we're going to begin really digging in this evening, or this morning I should say, of this group of people that Titus is going to be working with on the island, old men, older men, older women. The next group here is, starts in verse 4, and that's the young women. Now for context, we'll go back to verse 3 because it, it runs right into it. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and here we go, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, before I jump into considering what these older women were to be teaching the younger women, first notice that it was the older women that were to be teaching the younger women. And so Paul is clear that his expectation was for the younger women to be discipled by the older women, not directly by Titus. Now that is not to say that those younger women couldn't sit in a Bible study that Titus was going to be teaching or Titus could never interact with those younger women. What it is to say is that Titus needed to act with wisdom and discretion when he was working with the younger women of the congregation. I suspect many of us have heard of far too many examples of pastors getting involved with the younger ladies of their congregation. And Paul steps in and he intervenes and he gives an instruction here for Titus that he needed to be careful in his interactions with the younger women of the congregation. It's a pattern, he sets a pattern of interaction in the church that would limit behavior which could lead to sexual temptation between Titus as the pastor and the women and the people that he was ministering to. And again, this doesn't mean that the young women were barred from listening to Titus teach. It simply means that Titus was not to make the younger women the focus of his personal ministry efforts. 
Paul would write to the Corinthian church these words. He said, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I mean, how easily uh, Titus could have rationalized, well, I'll be all right. She's ugly or something, you know what I mean? Like, I don't care. I'm not tempted by her or something like that. You need to be careful because hearts grow attached to one another. And even hearts that are involved in ministry efforts can grow attached in places that they shouldn't be growing attached to. And Paul, the wiser, older man of the faith, he understands this, he knows this, he's in his 60s here, only has another four or five years left to live. And he knows this and he gives this counsel, this instruction to his young protege, Titus. I said a moment ago that we've all probably heard far too many examples of pastors getting inappropriately involved with female members of their congregation. I suspect that the vast majority of those inappropriate relationships didn't begin with one or both parties seeking to have an inappropriate relationship. Some cases, maybe, but I suspect the vast majority of situations, it's something that developed. And Paul here wisely, knowing that things happen and that hearts can become bound together by affection, even when that affection is in the ministry, he wisely gives this advice to Timothy, or this, that's not advice, it's instruction to Timothy, that he, be needs, he needs to be careful with the people that he is ministering to. Now, maybe you're not a minister. Maybe you're not a ministry leader. The vast majority of us in here aren't ministers, and we're, all of us, most of us aren't ministry leaders necessarily. But I do still think there is a lesson here for all of us to take away from Paul's instructions. And that is that we need to be careful in these types of areas. We need to be wise in these types of areas. We need to take heed lest we fall. Listen, it has happened to a lot of other people before you, and it can happen to you as well, and it could happen to me as well. And so wisely, we take steps to prevent it from occurring. And so Paul tells Titus, train up the older women so that they can train up the younger women. His instructions. Don't make it your ministry to disciple the younger women directly. Equip the older women to do that. Now, specifically, he was to teach those older ladies to present to the younger ladies, as it says here, those things that are good. And in doing so, these are the types of things that are going to come out. He says, train the younger ladies to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, to be kind and submissive to their own husbands. And then he adds that the word of God may not be reviled. And so once again, as we looked last week together, once again, we see the value of Christian community in the local body of believers, how important it is that we're not just pounding around with everybody that looks like us and is in the same stage of life as us, but that we're broadening the influences that we are allowing into our lives. In this case, older women with younger women. Older women interacting with the younger women, older men interacting with the younger men. It is an incredible resource that we have in this setting. There's not a lot of settings like this out in the world, is there? Where you have all different people from all different walks of life and education backgrounds and old people and young people and so on and so forth. And we come together as a body of believers and begin to build relationships with one another. It is an incredible blessing. Don't miss it. Don't ignore it. Seek it out. Create it, really. 
you have a place you can invite someone. If you don't have your own place, I'll meet you at the diner. And we can begin to interact with one another. It's an incredible resource. And years of the study of scripture and the practical experience, it enables an older godly man or woman of the church to pass on that valuable counsel to those that are just getting started in their adult years. And it's the wise young person that will take advantage of that. So Paul begins, and he says, train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Now, we've already learned that the false teachers on Crete, it said in the passage from last week or two weeks ago, they were upsetting whole families by their teaching. Maybe that's the reason why Paul feels it's necessary to begin with this instruction that is focused on these young ladies and their families. But whatever his motivation, what it's clear is that Paul makes commitment to family a key priority in the life of a young wife. And Paul says that they are to be instructed to love their husbands and children. We tend to think of love as an emotion. I feel it. So we tend to think of it as an emotion. But notice here, here it is something that Paul says the older women are to teach the younger women to do. And so in that, then, we learn that love is not simply an emotional response if everything is going great at home to the circumstance we find ourselves in, but it's a decision of the will. So Paul says, train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Perhaps you've, you're familiar, a lot of people are, that in the Greek language, the Koine Greek, the old, the ancient Greek, there were a number of different words that were used that we in English just translate as love. And they have all sorts of different meanings depend on the context. We just say, I love it. I love my wife. I love pizza. I love my dogs. You know, we just use the same word for everything. But there they used unique words for each particular circumstance they were facing in. In the scriptures, there's four in particular. It's, you know, maybe eros, which is romantic love. Phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Storge, which speaks of sort of a familial love that you hope your two boys have for one another, um, but sometimes they fight a lot. Uh, and then agape love, which is the unconditional love. Sometimes we call that God's love, the way that God loves those. The word that Paul uses here when he's talking about love for husband and children is from that root word phileo. It's actually the word philandros, and it, it is a love that speaks of tender affection. And so Titus is instructing the older women to train the younger women how to be tenderly affectionate toward their husband and their children. Despite, he didn't say this, but I, I think we all know, we've been around the block, despite the challenges and the difficulties and the stressors that often come at that stage of life. When you have a young family and you have kids running around and all that, it brings with it all sorts of stressors. And the older women are to train the younger women, the godly older women are to train the younger women. Here's how you get through these years. And they feel long, don't they? The days do. We, we know that. The years go by somewhat quickly. But the days are incredible. I'm never going to make it out of here. I don't know how I'm going to survive until bedtime tonight. And then when the kids are in bed, i got laundry to do and so on and so forth. Most marriages, maybe all marriages, experience stressors and strains. So we have to work to keep love preeminent in our relationships. And Paul's instruction to these older godly women is to teach the younger women 
how to do that, to teach them how to give and to give and to give of themselves in self-sacrifice, just as Jesus did, but how to keep giving and keep giving on behalf of those that are most dear to them. Now, just a word of note. No amens from the men of the congregation to this material. That would not be wise. And I'll remind you that Paul instructs husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. So I don't want any men like feverishly scribbling down what their wives need to do when they get home today. Because the scripture speaks to you as well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Walking with Jesus, whether you're a man or a woman, is a life of denying oneself, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. This is what Matthew 16 says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And that's not always easy to do. And truth be told, you know it, many times we're better doing that with strangers and coworkers and people we hardly know than we are in our very home with our families. And so how nice then to be able to have an older mentor that can speak into our lives and encourage us when it gets hard to do that. I remember as my kids started growing and getting a little bit older and good <laughs> um, or whatever, I remember thinking like, well, I'm really growing in my faith. I don't get as frustrated anymore. I don't think I was growing. I think they were growing here. But it becomes difficult. It becomes a struggle. And you find yourselves, you're nicer with people out and about than you are in your own home. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And again, how nice to have an older, older mentor that can speak into our lives and encourage us when it, get hard, when it gets hard to do that. An older mentor that understands she's been there. Even he's been there, if we're talking about young men. And they can encourage us. They can pray for us. They maybe give us some pointers. Here's what I used to do. I know for me, a pointer that somebody shared with me, I don't know who. But get up. I used to say, um, beat your kids up in the morning. And what I meant by that was very different than the way it sounded. What I meant was get up before them so you can have time in the word before everyone's running around. But Dyfus showed up in my house because they were concerned with my advice here. But what I meant was somebody gave me advice. You need to be ready when they get up. And so I would get up early and I would seek the Lord in the word and pray and hopefully be a little prepared for the frustrations that might be ahead of me just with young kids, not because they're bad kids. It's because they're little. That's what they do. So Paul says that first instruction, train, train the young women to love their husbands and children. Next, he says to Titus regarding the older women training the younger women, he says, train them to be self-controlled. Now, what's interesting to note is this is not a special requirement for the younger women. Because back in verse 2, Paul instructed the older men that they were to be self-controlled. In verse 3, he didn't use the word, but he was describing how some of these ladies were given to kind of loose talk, gossip, and slander, and too much drink, and tell them not to do that. Well, that's self-control there. And a little later, we're going to see when he's talking to the young men, he tells them that they are to be self-controlled. So every, all believers... In every stage of life, we need to grow in the area of controlling our impulses. One of the values of the spiritual discipline of fasting is you learn, I can say no to myself and still survive. I'm not going to die. 
by not having this meal today or whatever it might be. And so all of us need to grow in the area of controlling our impulses. And while that self-control, it may look different if you're an older man than if you are a younger woman, it's nevertheless an area that each of us needs to follow God's leading in. How's God guiding? How's he directing? What's he speaking into my life to stay away from or to get involved in? And controlling our impulses and urges and doing what it is that he's directing us. I mentioned this last week, but I'll remind you again, Galatians 5 tells us that one of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. So what that means is if we're going to grow in that area in our lives, it's not going to come primarily from self-determination. I'm going to become a more self-controlled individual. It comes as a result of the Holy Spirit working in the believer's life and as we respond to him. And so as he leads and as he guides, we respond to that and we begin to grow in the area of self-control. And so whether you're a younger woman or an older woman, a young man, an older man, how's God directing you? What are some things that he's been speaking to your heart about? You know, it's time for you to put that down. It's time for you to get away from that. You know, it's time for you to get up off that couch and to go do this. And your impulse says stay here, but I want you to get up and I want you to do it. How is God directing you? How is God leading you? And are you responding to that leading? If you're not, you're not growing. Certainly not in the area of self-control. And, and I think if that's stunted, everything's going to be stunted. Paul goes on. He says, train them to be pure. Now, some versions use the word chaste here. So train them to be pure. Train them to be chaste. He said something similar when he was advising uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy. We saw that not too long ago of how the women needed to avoid adorning themselves in such a way that would draw people to themselves. The verse says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And we spent time and we unpacked all of that. You can go back, you can listen to the study on 1 Timothy. But there, what Paul was addressing was the outward appearance of the young women that Timothy uh, would indirectly be ministering to. That people were, there were, are people that are trying to draw people to themselves through their outward appearance. Paul will go on to say, if you want to draw people to yourself, draw people to yourself with your humble and quiet spirit. Draw people, not with your outward appearance, but your inward heart attitude. Let people get to know you and be like, man, I love that lady. What a sweet sister she is. That's what Paul said people should be drawn to. But in the first Timothy passage, he was primarily talking about the outward appearance and the responsibility of these women in, in how they presented themselves. Here, as he talks about purity and chastity, he's using a different word. And he's not referring to the outward appearance of these ladies, but he's referring to the inward purity of their heart and of their mind. He's referring to their thought life and where they allow their thoughts to go. I, keep, I kept picturing all week uh, those romance novels that, with Fabio, you know, or whatever. It's like, not good, <laughs> all righty? Not good for me, not good for you. The godly younger woman is true to her husband and her family, her children, in her heart and mind, as well as in her actions. 
And so it's not just about, I don't do this thing. It's a hard attitude that the godly older women helps the godly or desiring to be godly younger women to attain for her life. He says that the godly, the young woman is to be uh, pure or chaste. Next one here, he says, train them to be working at home. Now this verse, this portion of the verse has certainly stirred a bit of controversy in our modern society and culture. The ESV, it says, working at home. Other versions, they use phrases like a trainer to be busy at home, that's the NIV. Managers of their households, that's something called the Berean Study Bible. The New King James Version says, train them to be homemakers. And the King James Version says, train them to be keepers at home, which sounds an awful lot like to me, train them to be housekeepers. Let's move on. <laughs> Is that what Paul's getting at? Is, are you sure? Can't we just say it is, Trevor? Is that what Paul's getting at? That the older women should train the younger women to be good housekeepers? I, I don't think so. And I would definitely advise the young women now, uh, young men now, don't say amen uh, to that statement. The older women training the younger women to be good housekeepers is not what Paul has in mind. Now, that being said, he clearly has something in mind when he says working at home, or the more closer translation, keeper of the home. Now, the, the Greek word that is used here, it's from the same root where we get the word that is translated in our English language, economy. And we often think of economy as you know money kind of exchanging hands and doing what it does. In, in the Greek language, the word economy, it had the idea of a system or the overall operation of a system. And so even with the word economy, the way we use it, it's not just money changing hands here, it's money changing hands all around America and all around the world. The economy is operating. It's the system that is in place. And Paul uses a word, same root as that, as this idea of economy here. And so what Paul is referring to is the management of household affairs. You see the connection that I'm making with that word economy there? Paul has told us elsewhere that the, that the husband is to serve his family as the head of the household, Ephesians chapter 5.23. Here, what we learn that while that is the case, that the husband is to be the head of the household, that the wife is to serve as the manager of the household. Now, the point is not so much that a woman's place is in the home. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. I think the point is more so that her responsibility is for the home serving her husband and serving her children and modeling for her husband and her children godliness and self-sacrificial service to others. That's a primary responsibility, a husband to lead, a wife to take charge of managing the home, the environment of the home. What's this place going to look like? What's this place going to feel like? We live in a culture that puts enormous pressure upon women to enter the workforce. There's cultural pressure, there's financial pressure, we're never gonna be able to live in a nice home if. There's feministic pressure, I don't know if that's a word uh, in this context, but certainly that. You're more, than, more important than just raising kids. Remember one, one of the politicians said, uh, well, am I gonna stay home and bake cookies all day? 
that sounds great. I would love cookies all day or whatever here. But her point was, I'm better than that. I'm just going to stay home and bake cookies. Now, I don't see this verse as an absolute command that women should not enter into work and career outside of the home. But I do think it speaks to other factors that needed to be added into the equation when a husband and wife are making the decision if the wife is going to work outside of the home. Paul's admonition is that the home, and again, not the house, but the people that live in that house, that the, how, the home should be factored into the decision that that couple is making regarding how the wife is going to spend her daily time. The household, the people, are the primary responsibility at this stage in her life, and they need to remain her highest priority. And Titus was to teach the older women to train the younger women to truly be great home makers, creating a home where people are loved. And they sense that love in that home, which he said in the beginning, train them to be affectionate. He goes on, he says, train them to be kind. And so as the keeper of the home, her responsibility, part of it is creating an environment where the home can be seen as a refuge. My wife did this, I think, so well when our kids were growing up. She, there was some silly phrase that, do you remember the silly phrase? I don't either. But my son Jake said it a lot, um, making fun of us. <laughs> um, but anyway, creating an environment where the home is a refuge. The world's crazy enough. And we need to be able to have a place where we can come home and we're safe and we can grow. The godly older women would teach the younger women how to do that, how the home could begin to serve as a refuge from the world. You've heard the expression, and I'm going to see if you can finish it. If mama isn't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of truth to that. Paul's instruction to Titus is to teach the older women to pass on to the younger women the importance of being kind in the execution of their responsibilities. Because they can do it, but everyone's afraid of mom because she's not happy. That's not what Paul's getting at. Especially, people have their days, right? Yeah. Well, I know my wife does. (laughs) People have their days. People are, you know, and in those instances, you just back away and, come on, kids, let's go outside and play uh, or whatever. But that can't become sort of the norm of the home. It's not going to do your kids any good, your husband any good, you any good, that every day of the 20 years those kids are in your house or whatever it might be, is everyone's walking on eggshells because they're afraid of mom's wrath or something. The older women are to teach the younger women in that regard. Lastly, he says, train the young women to be submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be Reviled. And this, too, is one of those verses or phrases that's caused quite a bit of stir, oftentimes from those that aren't even interested in the things of God. But they love this verse because they hate it so much here. The ESV, he writes it, submissive to their own husbands is how it's written. And many have a problem with that. Well, if you have a problem with that, you're going to love uh, the NIV, the New American Standard. That says subject to. The King James and New King James use the word obedient to. Wives are to be obedient to their husbands and subjects of their husbands. Is that what it's saying here? Well, the word that's translated as obedient in the King James, the New King James, as subject in the NIV, the New American Standard, it's a word that is, even in those translations, it's a word that elsewhere is often translated as submit. 
I'm not quite sure why they decided to go a different direction, uh, but nonetheless, they did. But the, the word really is this idea of submit. Now, when I think of submit, I, I picture back when I was a kid and I would watch WWF wrestling. And some guy would be benting a pretzel and screaming out, and he would finally say, I submit, or whatever. That's not what Paul is getting at. He's not getting to this idea of so much force that the other person eventually gives it up and they submit. They throw in the towel. That's not what Paul, Peter, would say the same, he would use the same word. That's not what they have in mind when they call upon a wife to submit to their husband. And by the way, he calls husbands in another passage to mutually submit themselves to their wives. Ephesians chapter 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the word that is used is a military term, this, this word submit, it's a military term, and it refers to the hierarchy of authority in a unit. And in a home, the hierarchy of authority is that the husband is to be the head, Ephesians 5.23, 1 Corinthians 11.3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, verse 5, and so on. And that the wife, the wife is to submit herself to that head. Now, here's a little note. If you're not married yet, one of the key questions, ladies, one of the key questions that you want to be asking yourself is this, is this a man that I can and that I want to submit myself to? And if your answer is, well, maybe, run. All right? <laughs> Don't be dumb. Don't make that mistake. And young men, you're still, you're not married yet or whatever, you need to be asking yourself, are you the type of man that a godly woman would want to submit herself to? Because that's what we're called to do in the scripture. Now, the tense of this phrase that, that Paul uses, it indicates not that the wife, like the WWF wrestler, has been bent into a pretzel and finally throws in the towel here. The tense that is used of this word, is it, it, what it means is that the submission is a voluntary act on the part of the wife toward her husband. So she's not being forced to submit, she's deciding to submit. She has chosen to submit herself in that home in response to God's admonition for her to do so. Now, of course, I add in, well, what if you have a, an ungodly husband? What if he names the name of Christ, but he's a creep? And, you know, he's one thing when he's here, but he's something else when he's there. Or what if your husband's not even a believer? We have a lot of folks here came to life a little, or not life, uh, came to Christ a little bit later in life. And, you know, the, their, their marriage uh, to their husband, he's not yet a believer. Uh, we say yet because we're praying for him to become one. And what do you do in those circumstances there? Well, you submit as much as you can until it enters into the realm of sin. You have to ultimately submit and obey God. It's a difficult circumstance, certainly, that you are in, but there's a general hard attitude that is involved, and it's not ultimately to him as much as it is to the one above him, which is to God. Now, again, I'll say the same thing I said when this topic came up in our other books of study. This is not to say that the husband is superior to the wife. It's not to say the husband is smarter or more capable or anything like that. And I told the men, don't say amen. Ladies, don't say amen uh, to that. You got that right. He ain't smarter than me. Don't say that. Not good. <laughs> what it says is simply this. She has a different role than her husband. Husbands and wives have different roles in the home. And that's designed by God. And again, she submits herself in that role primarily to God. 
not through her husband. She's made the decision not to suppress her gifts or her talents or her abilities, but to properly express those gifts and abilities and talents as God designed in support of her husband. And frankly, he's going to do that for her as well. So let me say this. Guys, if you're sitting here thinking, man, when we get home, my wife and I are going to have a talk about these things here. That's a mistake. If your wife is having a hard time submitting to your leadership in the home, more often than not, what I've found is that's a husband problem more than it is a wife problem. Not always, not in every circumstance, but in almost every circumstance that I've encountered, it's more you're not being the type of husband that she can submit herself to or desires to submit herself to or is fighting against submitting herself to. And so before you start throwing around statements like, you need to submit to me, you need to begin to ask yourself, am I the type of man that she wants to submit to? At the same time, ladies, if you find yourself thinking things like this, well, as soon as my husband starts acting the way I want him to be acting, then I'll start submitting to him. May I remind you that your responsibility is to obey God as he instructed you. And let God deal with your husband. And he's pretty good at that. Christian women were some of the freest women in the world in first century Europe and Asia. And wherever the message of the gospel was introduced and received by that community, the rights of women correspondingly increased. You can just study history books and begin to discover that. Notice, however, just because there needed to be a correction from the cultural norms of that day and age, certainly, that were prevalent in the unbelieving culture that Paul was dealing with, just because there were corrections that needed to be made, that doesn't mean that the pendulum swings so far that it's outside of God's direction, God's command, God's parameters that he has established. And so the people, the men and the women, they were to live according to a different standard of this world and the world that they lived in, but not to no standard. That's bad English, I understand, but yet, do you see where I'm going with that? It was a different standard from the world, but it was still a standard. God had a standard. And so it was way over here where women had no rights at all, and the temptation was to swing it way over here when God said, no, I'm right here in the middle. This is where I am. This is what I have designed. This is where I want you to be. So there remained to be this standard. And if these newly believing Christians, if they threw off all degrees of hierarchy, then the result would be chaos and disorder in that community. Homes wouldn't be better because Christ was introduced into that community and into that home, but they would be more divided than ever. And to the outside observer looking in and saying, well, that family just became a Christian, and it's chaos now in that home here, the end result is, I'm not interested in your faith. And don't talk to my wife, let me tell you that, because I don't want that in my home. The people's conclusion is that the faith and the teachings of the faith, the word of God, were just a bunch of crazy ideas to stay away from. That's what Paul, I think, is getting at when he says the word of God would be reviled. You swing all the way over here, the word of God is going to be reviled. It's been said, maybe you've heard it. It says, be careful how you live, because you may be the only Bible some people ever read or some person ever reads. And there's a lot of truth to that. Before most people ever pick up a Bible or go to a church or anything like that, before they ever pick up a Bible and begin to read it for themselves, they're going to look at the life of a Christian 
And they're going to see if it's worth picking up a Bible. Or they're going to see if it's worth going to church or something like that. Or seriously considering uh, the faith. And so be careful that the decisions that you are making, the responses you are having to circumstances, the things you are doing, be careful that they're pointing people to God and not turning people away from God. He says that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, lastly, he speaks to the young men. Men, you listening? There's a lot here for the young men. He says, urge them to be self-controlled. That's it. <laughs> That's all he says to the men. And, and I'm, I was trying to wonder about that. Why so much for, like, everybody else? But so just because young men, you can only focus on one thing. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I, just give me one thing. You know, I'll do that or whatever here. But he says to the young men, he says, likewise, again, self-controlled. He told the older men to be self-controlled. In so many words, he told the older women to be self-controlled. He told the young women to be self-controlled. And now he tells these young men, urge them to be self-controlled. Once again, we have a situation, different translations use slightly different words here. So depending on the version you're reading, you're either going to see self-controlled, sensible. Some of your versions will use words like sober or sober-minded. And the idea then, again, is this. To be sober or sober-minded, to be sensible, is to be in control of one's senses. In control of one's mind so that they can be in control of their actions. And that's how some of the versions come up with this word, self-controlled. I really like the way the Living Bible translates this. I don't read that version too often, but I came across it for this verse, and I liked it. It says, now, in the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. What a great way of saying it. How many difficulties young men, and men of all ages, women of all ages, how many difficulties, though, young men get themselves into because of a lack of self-control? How many difficulties we all get ourselves into because we don't think clearly through the consequences of a decision. We're not in control of our thinking, and thus we make bad decisions. He says, train the young men to live wisely, to be self-controlled, to think about, if I do this, where does that lead? If I go down this avenue, where will I end up? Again, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, because self-control is crucial to living life wisely as God would have us to do. And I'm sure Paul would give them, a, the young man, a whole bunch of, or Titus is going to give them a whole bunch of other instructions as well. But the basic starting point for these young men was to live wisely by controlling themselves and their impulses as God would have them to do. And so young men, Paul wouldn't have told Titus to urge the young men to live wisely and to exercise self-control in their lives if they couldn't do it. I think this is an important thing. He wouldn't have said, urge them to have self-control, and then after a week or so, get them all back together and laugh at them again because it's impossible to have self-control. He knows that it's possible for us to exercise self-control, and so he tells Titus, urge the young men to exercise self-control. Is the temptation strong? Yes. Whatever the temptation might be, temptations are very strong in a whole host of areas that young men deal with. And yes, it does seem like we live in a society and an age where the temptations are right in your face, and you could have them in any minute that you want to have them. But the good news is this, is that you do not have to give in to your temptations and those temptations. 
They may feel strong, but they're no, not so strong that they are going to force you or they have to force you to give in to them. I think that's incredibly good news. I think if we're people that want to walk with God, we want to honor God, we want to live our lives for God, that doesn't mean we're not going to be tempted towards certain areas to get involved in certain things or to do certain things. But the wonderful news for the person who strongly desires to walk with the Lord is that he can give us victory in those areas. And so whether you're young or old, male or female, I think a great verse to memorize and to hang on to, memorize it so that that moment you need it, you have it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to look it up. It's right there. It's from Paul's writing to 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthians in chapter 10. He says, no, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Amen. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think that is incredible news. It's great news for the guy who wants to walk with Jesus and the young lady and old lady who wants to walk with Jesus. Victory is possible. There's a wonderful resource. It's called Victorious Christian Living. Who's that, Redpath? By Alan Redpath. I would encourage every one of you to pick it up and take your time with it. Victorious Christian Living. Victory is possible. We don't have to give in to sin we can walk in that victory in a way, our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. You were created to do that. If you're a Christian, you were recreated to do that. That's his desire for you. And when you're walking in that, that's what you were created for. And there's incredible peace and joy and rest and comfort when we find ourselves doing that. And so, young ladies, you had five or six instructions. Men, let me just break it down simple for you guys. Exercise self-control. Let's pray together. Father, I, I do so very much appreciate that we no longer need to be slaves to sin. None of us that name the name of Christ in this room. None of us that have been born again by the Spirit of God. And a new spirit has entered into our lives, empowering us, certainly at war with the flesh, but empowering us to walk in godliness. And so, Father, I, I pray that right now two things would be happening in all of our hearts. Lord, that you might be shining a light on those areas that you still want to refine. And at the same time as you're doing that, you would fill us with a knowledge that no temptation has overtaken us that we must give in to. And so, Lord, help us to apply these things this week. Help us to walk in them. Bless your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.